Hi, welcome to LSAT Boss. This is your host, Shauna Ginsberg, and today again is our amazing near celebrity co-host at this point, Miss Claudia Ryan. I don't think that's correct, but hello, buddies. And Claudia can't stand the LSAT. And she actually it. is gonna go to law school. I hate it so much. You know, the LSAT is just the first of what I say is 30 exams that you need to take before you're a professional attorney. So the LSAT breaks the seal. Can I get accommodations that preclude me from taking tests? Now, I can't get you out of the con law exam. I can't get you out of logic games. Remember, kids, life is suffering and despair. But you decided to be a lawyer, so that's really your fault. And we're only anxious about things that matter. So look at you already putting great importance and significance into your future con law exam. This sounds like a mistake. Or since you've already committed so much time into this whole law school thing that you might as well you know, see it through to the end. And we were talking about that idea, that all or nothing flaw and how you can actually use it in a positive. There's this... Oh, oh, wait, is that a myth? No, it's not a myth. No, not a myth We're not ready for a myth yet, but stay tuned. It's called the sunk cost fallacy. And it's this economics idea that once you've already invested time and money into something, you might as well keep dumping money into it, even if it wasn't a good investment. So The sunk cost fallacy isn't something you're necessarily going to see on the LSAT. However, you can manipulate it. This is my, you know, groundbreaking theory. You can manipulate the sunk cost fallacy to your advantage in order to continue studying for the LSAT. That's never worked for me when I dated or did anything else. Did work when you were at the table when we were working together and you realized that you'd already committed so much time and effort into studying for the LSAT that you're like, what's another month? It was either this or medical school and I don't like people, so. My grandmother said the same thing. She and I would be best friends. Uh, You did mention a myth. Does that mean that you wanted to bust a myth before we got started today? I do. I do. Okay. Myth. It's still good quality studying. Even if your teenage sons, Spencer, Davis, and Max, for example, keep interrupting you. I'm looking at you, Davis. You're trouble. <laughs> so can we bust this myth? Claudia, you've got a kid, not a teenage son, but you've got a kid. Can you do good quality studying when you're being interrupted by him? Child or goblin, which do I have? Uh, <laughs> no, you can't. It's really hard to get focused, no matter how adorable it is when your kid shows you his Lego inventions. It's really distracting. Distracting and adorable. Occasionally, yes. But it takes you out of that concept known as deep work, right? Once you get into something, you've you've put a lot of information together sequentially, and then, boom, cute distraction. My brain is no longer engaged in my work. No, and then in order to get back where you started, you have to refresh yourself on where you were, which is, again, time-consuming. And some people just go, forget this. This kid is so adorable, way cuter than this test prep, I've got to say. All of the sewer rats in Baltimore are cuter than this test, so... (laughs) So it's a really hard thing to stay committed to your studying when you're distracted. It's also... Very hard to say, hey, that really distracted studying was good studying. I get students who will come to me and report very low accuracy on their homework, and I go, well, tell me what was going on then. And then they go, well, there was a woman screaming at the top of her lungs in the room right next to me. I go, well, do you think that had anything to do with it? 
Because I don't want to sit here and have you questioning your intelligence just because somebody was having a bad day and you overheard them, right? Mostly what I study to when I listen to music is people screaming anyways, so that might have helped. What What are you listening to? I made that up. I don't. You do like screaming. that kind of like heavy metal, and you do come from like a bit of a riot girl All right, era. punk, not heavy metal. There we go. Everybody thinking that she's not actually listening to screaming people. She's absolutely listening to screaming people. They're sneering, thank you. It's like jazz for just Claudia. Just like me, sneering. All right, I think we're ready to do the lesson today. And this is just a continuation of last week's lesson. So Claudia and I are going to run through two more practice questions today. We'll do a quick refresher on what we did last week. And then I will leave you with a pearl of wisdom before I send you off on your merry way. And maybe another myth we could bust. Sounds good. Okay. All right. right. All right. So let's get started with a quick refresher. Last week, we talked about role questions and that all arguments can be broken down into premises and conclusions. When we're looking at premises, we want to be thinking about the argument type, whether it's causal, abductive, analogy, or data sampling, because the jargon or the language that's gonna be used to identify or reference premises is going to be specific to that argument structure. You're not gonna refer to a premise as the basis of an analogy if it's in a causal argument. So that's the first thing we talked about. We also talked about this whiteboard that I have used to help my students, and that's where we break the jargon into the different parts. You can download the episode notes at our website, and you can see that whiteboard for yourself. It's really helpful to visualize the different jargon based on premise and conclusion, based on each argument type, because it's in a nice set of boxes. And visually, for me, it helps me compartmentalize the jargon into different spaces. Life is all about compartmentalization. I'm so glad you're here today with us, Claudia. (laughs) I've been in a mood lately, guys. Sorry. I'm getting dark. We also talked about the different types of causal arguments and how you can tell whether something provides indirect or direct support. So we talked about an example of an argument structure that was symbolized as if A, then B. And there, we would say that A provides direct support for B, which makes A the premise and B the conclusion of a causal argument. In example two, we talked about an abductive version of a causal argument that went A to B to C. And there, because A and C are separated by B, we would say that A provides indirect support for C but B provides direct support for C. And then lastly, example three was about two different premises we called A1 and A2. Together, they led to B, and so we would say that each premise, A1 and A2, provides some direct support, but not all the direct support for B. But I did make cookies for Claudia, so she's not like super miffed at me today. No. And I also gave her this amazing cup of tea in the coolest mug ever. Um, I don't know why you can't find this everywhere. I'm going to have to find it. But it has major cases in American history all around. And then when you pour in the hot water, the winners are revealed. So Claudia is actively drinking out of a cup that has very large, the words Bush, Map, Miranda, Gideon, Bell, Loving Row. And then there was... Roe is my favorite. I hate Lochner v. New York. 
Do you know what's kind of cool, though? When it cools off, Gore reappears. <laughs> In an alternate timeline. So, uh, let's get into the first guided practice today, ladies and gentlemen. And as we get into it, I'm going to teach you this really cool, very formal, logical reasoning inference rule. Remember, guys, cool is relative. It's from Latin, and the name of the rule is Modus Talendo Ponens. I can't get a tattoo, but if I Extremely could, I would guys. absolutely get a modus Talendo Ponens tattoo right on my ankle, probably. Ugh, it would be the coolest. Here's what modus Talendo Ponens means. If you have only two options, A and B, and you eliminate option A as an answer choice, then it can be inferred that you'll have left B. Modus Talendo Ponens, in a world of only A and B, if not A... Then B. And if not B, then A. And this is actually where the rule about contrapositive logic comes from. And if you've taken a standard LSAT test prep class, you've probably heard the term contrapositive and you can go, oh, that means that if I have if A, then B, then if I have not B, then I'll have not A. And while that's true, that doesn't actually help you the same way that modus talendo ponens does. Because modus talendo ponens says, when you're reading an argument, look to see if there are two options and then one being eliminated, because if one is eliminated, then the other one will be left standing. And with that, we're going to get started. This is in your homework in the episode notes, which you can download from our site. And it's also on page 87 of the LSAC Prep Test, Volume 5. It's question number 25 on that page. Editorial. The town would not need to spend as much as it does on removing trash if all town residents sorted their household garbage. However, while telling residents that they must sort their own garbage would get some of them to do so, many would resent the order and refuse to comply. The current voluntary system, then, is to be preferred because it costs about as much as a non-voluntary system would, and it does not engender nearly as much resentment. The contention that the town would not have to spend as much as it does on removing trash if all town residents sorted their garbage plays which one of the following roles in the editorial's argument? This is a hard one. Oof. Before, okay. before we do the answer Ooh, choices. Before we do the answer choices. Let's okay. just break down the question because it was a mouthful. The question asks, the contention that the town would not have to spend as much as it does on removing trash if all town residents sorted their garbage plays which one of the following roles. That's hard for me to interpret, but I hear that there's an if in the big, in the middle of the sentence. Yes, there so is. I'm going to take the if part, the if phrase, the if condition, and put it at the beginning of the sentence and reread it. So if all town residents sorted their garbage, the town would not have to spend as much as it does on removing trash. That's very helpful. Now I can think about that sentence, which was the first sentence that the editorial included. That was the first sentence. The second sentence, now let me read that. It says, however, while telling residents that they must sort their garbage would get some of them to do so. The rest of us would refuse to comply. Yeah, and the contention that we're looking at is if all town residents sorted their garbage, which is sounds like a voluntary thing if they just sort it themselves as opposed to an involuntary or non-voluntary system where you're telling residents they must sort, right? So the argument doesn't actually use the words voluntary and involuntary 
in the premise, but the conclusion does make reference to voluntary and non-voluntary. So let's read the argument over again. And this time, I want you to listen for the shift from the premises to the conclusion when they, in the premises, talk about if all town residents sorted their household garbage and then telling residents they must sort their garbage and then see how they refer to those two systems as voluntary and involuntary in the conclusion. The town would not need to spend as much as it does on removing trash if all town residents sorted their household garbage. However, while telling residents that they must sort their own garbage would get some of them to do so, many would resent the order and refuse to comply. The current voluntary system, then, is to be preferred because it costs as much as a non-voluntary system would and it does not engender nearly as much resentment. Okay. All right. So before we look at the answer choices, let's see if we can break down this argument using a modus tollendo ponens analysis. The first half of the argument says the town would not need to spend as much as it does on removing trash if all town residents sorted their household garbage. What then happens in the argument is we learn about two options. The first option is... However, while telling residents that they must sort their garbage would get some of them to do so, many would resent the order and refuse to comply. That, we later find out in the conclusion, is what is considered the non-voluntary system. We know that because the next sentence says the current voluntary system then is to be preferred because it costs about as much as a non-voluntary system would and it does not engender nearly as much resentment. And so that last sentence of the argument, which actually includes a conclusion and a premise, indicates for the first time using words like voluntary and non-voluntary that that premise option that we heard about, about telling residents that they must sort their garbage, was the non-voluntary option. The third sentence in the argument actually introduces the second option for us, but it introduces it after the word because in the last sentence. It reads, the current voluntary system then is to be preferred because it costs about as much as a non-voluntary system would and it does not engender nearly as much resentment. So we have the two options. The conclusion supports the voluntary system. The second premise that we heard about the non-voluntary system is essentially eliminating the non-voluntary system as an option, leaving us with the voluntary system as a conclusion. In all of that, the two premises that provide the two options and then the conclusion that we reach, none of that actually involves the first sentence, which was the contention we were asked to look at. If all town residents sorted their household garbage, the town would not need to spend as much as it does on removing trash. The conclusion is the current voluntary system then is to be preferred, which means this first contention is actually supporting an alternative to the practice that the editorial is defending as preferable. Yep. Okay, let's go ahead and have Claudia in her beautiful angelic voice read the answer choices. A, it is a claim that the editorial is trying to show is false. B. It is a fact granted by the editorial that lends some support to an alternative to the practice that the editorial defends as preferable. C. It is an example of a difficulty facing the claim that the editorial is attempting to refute. 
D. It is a premise that the editorial's argument relies on in reaching its conclusion. E. It is the conclusion that the editorial's argument purports to establish. Well, I don't know if you all heard the language in B, but it was the same thing that I said. I know it's not E because I already know the conclusion, which was the current voluntary system then is to be preferred, is not the contention that we're asked to identify the role for. So E is out. D is out because it's not a premise that the editorial's argument relies on in reaching its conclusion because that is that statement, if all town residents sorted their household garbage, we could spend less. That sounds like a mandatory requirement. But the conclusion is about preferring the voluntary system. So D is out because the premise is not relied upon by the conclusion. C, it's an example of a difficulty facing the claim that the editorial is attempting to refute. It's not a difficulty facing the claim. This is a bunch of language that doesn't fit. Also, it's not an example of anything. It's a big general conditional statement. B is the right answer. A, it is a claim that the editorial is trying to show is false. They're not trying to show it's false. They're trying to say that the other option is preferred. And so it's B, it is a fact granted by the editorial that lends some support to an alternative to the practice that the editorial defends as preferable. That was a doozy. It's probably a good time for our last Mythbuster. Mythbuster. Myth. Your kids can't help you study. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. Does your son help you study? He does. When we, I was working on the logic games, he and I would go over each game, and the way I knew that I understood a problem was if I could explain it to him. He didn't usually pay that much attention and often got distracted, but it helped me. They can help you proctor your practice exams. They can guard the door to prevent other little ones from oh, yeah, getting my kid in. Definitely cannot do that. Maybe a teenage boy could. <laughs> wink, wink, hint, hint. Shout out to Utah again for our followers in Utah and all you teenage boys. Please help your father study. Yeah, Max and Davis and Spencer. And Spencer. I know y'all are listening, boys. Come on, get it together. Help your dad. We're looking for big gains this LSAT season. All right, we're going to finish off with one more practice question. This one is an abductive argument, and I want you to listen very carefully to the gotcha moment in the argument when you suddenly realize that somebody probably knew something and was lying about it. Lying is bad, guys. Lying is bad. Go All ahead right. and read it. Commentator. In last week's wreck involving one of Acme Engine's older locomotives, the engineer lost control of the train when his knee accidentally struck a fuel shutdown switch. Acme claims it is not liable because it never realized the knee level switches were a safety hazard. When asked why it's relocated knee level switches in its newer locomotives, Acme said engineers had complained that they were simply inconvenient. However, it is unlikely that Acme would have spent the $500,000 it took to relocate switches in the newer locomotives merely because of inconvenience. Thus, Acme Engines should be held liable for last week's wreck. The point that Acme Engines spends $500,000 relocating the knee level switches in its newer locomotives is offered in the commentator's argument as... I guess let's talk about it a little bit and then we'll read okay. off the answer choices. So for an abductive argument, we're essentially trying to develop the chronology. And then what we're going to do is say that 
we can infer that the very first event in the chronology essentially was the causation or the domino effect for the very last event. And in the argument you just read, initially what we hear is that a knee accidentally struck a fuel shutdown switch. And then an older locomotive wrecked because of that. And then $500,000 was paid by the company that owned the locomotive to relocate those knee level switches. And from that, the conclusion is reached that Acme should be held liable. But the key is that $500,000. When they say, however, it is unlikely that Acme would have spent the $500,000 it took to relocate switches in the newer locomotives merely because of inconvenience. What that means is it's almost like there's two options, you know, modus talendo opponents. It's either it was for inconvenience that they spent all that money to relocate them or it wasn't for inconvenience. And if it wasn't for inconvenience, then we would suggest that it was for something bigger than a simple inconvenience. And all of that inference leads to, yes, in fact, we can infer that this started with knowledge of something that was not just simply inconvenient, but was actually dangerous. And so the abductive argument that we think begin, that we started with the knee accidentally strikes the fuel shutdown switch, we actually want to take that $500,000 that was spent and use that to then infer that this whole abductive line of reasoning starts with Acme realizing the knee level switches were a safety hazard and did nothing. And then the knee struck the switch. You wanna read the answer choices now? Sure, and if anybody wants to give me $500,000, I have Venmo. The answers. A, proof that the engineer is not at all responsible for the train wreck. B, a reason for believing that the wreck would have occurred even if Acme had remodeled their old locomotives. C, an explanation of why the train wreck occurred. D, evidence that the knee level switches are not in fact hazardous. Or E, an indication that Acme engines had been aware of the potential dangers of knee level switches before the wreck occurred. All right, so I imagine some of you really sharp listeners could hear that E talks about aware of potential dangers and that's what our focus has been on in this guided practice. So the correct answer if you think it's E, well, let's make sure that we do a good process of elimination. The question again asked, the point that Acme Engines spent $500,000 relocating knee level switches in its newer locomotives is offered in the commentator's argument as, well, we know it's not the conclusion, right? So any language that's gonna say this is the conclusion is out because the end of the argument says, thus Acme Engines should be held liable for last week's wreck. Thus is a transition word triggering conclusion. Conclusion. So therefore, the $500,000 couldn't be the conclusion because that is reserved for Acme engines should be held liable for last week's wreck. So let's look at the answer choices. Is the $500,000 spent, is that A, proof that the engineer is not at all responsible? No, that's not what that does. That's proof that Acme is responsible, not that the engineer is not. B, a reason for believing that the wreck would have occurred even if Acme engines had remodeled the older locomotives. Well, the only thing that we could say is that this evidence gave us reason for believing that Acme should be held liable. 
that Acme should be responsible. So while it is a reason for believing something, it's not a reason for believing an alternate scenario that something may or may not have happened in the future had they acted. That's too far of a stretch. C, an explanation of why the train wreck occurred. No, it occurred because the knee accidentally struck the fuel shutdown switch. Yeah, dummies. That was the direct support for that for the wreck occurring. D, evidence that knee level switches are not, in fact, hazardous. Well, that's a false statement. They're way hazardous. They are super hazardous. And that leaves us with E, an indication that Acme engines had been aware of the potential dangers of knee level switches before the wreck occurred. Oof, hard stuff. Yeah. Nothing we can't handle. Really long episode today, but thanks for hanging in with us, everybody. You have plenty of homework to do. We have a very lengthy set of episode notes and homework for you on the website to download. Do your homework and then come back here and we will pick up where we left off with the next episode, which will be on reasoning questions, which kind of ask you to take all the roles and mush them together into one structure. So if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review, share an episode with your friend, download our episode notes and follow along and do your homework. And for those of you who are interested in working with us, we have a sale going on all Master Tutor sessions and plans. We have a final pearl of wisdom from Miss Claudia today, and she will take us out. We're going to visit the Stoics today, this Roman guy in particular named Seneca. Now remember, folks, he suffers more than necessary, the one who suffers before it is necessary. So with that anxiety, why don't you just cram it in a box, cram that box way down deep, and forget about it, until you need to be worried about something. Or you can just be anxious all the time, whatever. I'm not your boss. This has been LSAT Boss. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Right by you, you by me, everything